Amen. Praise God. Good job, brother. Good job. Amen. So we continue to hide God's word in our heart. Next week, we'll um, be reciting our text for this morning, which is 1 Timothy 6, verses 1 to 2. And before we turn there, there was one other announcement that I forgot to make. Is Where's our brother Patrice? Hey, come on up, Patrice. Oh, welcome, Patrice. You know, Patrice, you know, is a hardworking brother. He's in medical school and uh, just got back a couple of weeks ago from his rotation in Florida uh, and is back and, and doing all the things and uh, has a new ministry opportunity um, that you should share and announce with the folks that you, you volunteered to do this past Saturday. Hello. Hello, church. So uh, there is no, well, I guess it is a ministry. That's right. You, you're about to find uh, out. Yeah. So um, as of yesterday, I'm, I'm now engaged to... <laughs> Unfortunately, um, Nikkei, she's not here today. She's um, she's doing a shift at the hospital today, probably showing off the ring. Um, <laughs> so I will be accepting um, congratulations from all of you <laughs> on behalf of both of us. Um, but on a serious note, I do want to say um, thank you to the church. Um, and, you know, first and foremost, thank you to God. Thank you that um, this day was able to come. Thank you that Nikki said yes. She could have said no. Yeah. Um, and just... That, and I ask that you guys just keep us um, in your prayers that we can continue to say yes to each other for the rest of our days. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Praise God. Thank you, brother. Let's, let's pray for them now. Brother's not certain this is ministry. He's going to find out. Let's pray. <laughs> let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for Patrice. We thank you for Nikkei, Lord. We thank you so much for their lives. Um, their faith and their life together. We thank you, Lord, for the brightness that they add to our church family. And uh, we thank you, Lord, for the magnified brightness that uh, they will have together as husband and wife. We pray that you would be with them in this engagement period, that you would be preparing them not just for a wedding ceremony, but be preparing them for marriage, uh, for a life together that's better together than apart, and a life together that's intended Lord, for their, their holiness and their flourishing um, and, and their multiplied ministry together. Uh, so just be with them. Thank you that she said yes. Sustain them both in their studies and um, sustain them both in their service to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Praise God. Well, beloved, let's turn our attention to uh, God's word this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians, or excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 6. We have reached the final chapter of 1 Timothy, and uh, we continue to crawl through it verse by verse as we normally do. And so as you turn there, I'm going to ask God to bless his word. Father, do bless the preaching of your word. Give us ears to hear, help us to hear with faith. Change, O oh Lord, things in us that need to be changed. Uh, strengthen things that need to be strengthened. Um, Lord, help us in every way to understand what it means to be your family. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. How diverse can a family be and remain a family? What are the boundaries of difference? 
that family can tolerate. I mean, a family is defined by a shared identity. And a good family has a shared purpose and goals. But can it be called family if it's on, on some deep level, identities differ and goals contradict? In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul is still writing about the topic of how to treat the family of God. As we said before, the, the, the sort of main idea hanging over chapter 5 and now coming into chapter 6 is this idea that the church is the household of God, that the church is the family of God, and uh, the main sort of instruction in all of the relations that Paul talks about, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, older men, older women, younger men, younger women, uh, the widows, the, the main sort of instruction there is to honor, to show honor. And both of those ideas come with us into chapter 6. He's still talking about the fact that the church is the family of God, and he's still talking about um, the appropriateness, the, the necessity of showing honor to members in the family. But now he's come to what for many of us will be a difficult relationship in the family of God. He's come to address the relationship of slaves to masters inside of God's church. And the question is, how can two groups with such different identities, such different social and economic locations, how could two groups with such different, we would trust, goals for themselves stick together as family? If the gospel has any real power, then we should expect it to unify as families those who would seem to be opposites and even enemies. And if Christians have any real faith and any real trust in the Lord, then we Christians must find a way to be family, especially in the midst of wide and deep difference. In, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, these two verses are really parallel. They're saying much the same thing in two different ways. Each verse is a sentence, and each sentence has two parts. There's a command or an instruction, and then there's a, a sort of reason statement, a purpose statement for that command. And as we look at these, um, as these two verses, I want us to hang our thoughts on sort of three statements about God's family. Number one, everyone in God's family deserves honor. Everyone in God's family deserves honor. Number two, in God's family, we are to bless each other. In God's family, across these massive differences, we are to bless each other. And number three is just really a, an implication and a place for me to make a couple of applications. God's family ain't like our families. God's family, in a very profound way, is not like the natural human family. And we'll see that as we read 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers, 
Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Let's read that again. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. The first thing we want to see from this text is that everyone in God's family deserves honor. We see that in the first part of, of verse 6, where Paul instructs, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. And again, you may feel an itch reading this in the Bible. Why is this in the Bible? Is the Bible pro-slavery? There have been those who have argued that it is. And I want to argue that as we go through this, we'll see that they have brought disrepute on the Bible. So we need, we need to interpret God's word carefully here. Notice that in verse 1, the word bondservant is a word that could literally be translated as slaves. But the translators have chosen the word bondservant to indicate that the slavery spoken of here is not the same kind of slavery that was practiced in the transatlantic slave trade. Well, how did the translators know that? Well, it's by comparing the scripture with the scripture. So if you're new to Bible reading, let me give you um, one of the sort of rules of good interpretation of the scripture. It's called the analogy of faith. That is, we are to interpret one passage of the Bible using other passages of the Bible. And when we do that, it's really clear here in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that Paul is not talking about race-based chattel perpetual slavery as he addresses the relationship between master and slave. This is, for example, not the first time that Paul mentions slavery in this letter. Do you remember when he first mentions it? It's in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 10. You remember he, there are those people there who want to be teachers of the law, but they don't understand what they are teaching or what they are talking about. And he says in verse 8, now we understand that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding that the law is not laid down for the just, and then he begins to list a whole bunch of people that are condemned by the law. He talks about those who are unholy and ungodly. He talks about those who hit their moms and dads. And, and in the midst of that, he names enslavers. Or you may have a translation that, that literally puts it man-stealers. So the kind of slavery where you would go kidnap someone and, and take them from their land and take them from their family, take them someplace else and force them into slavery or sell them into slavery. The Bible here in, in, in the first mention of slavery in 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, verse 10, condemns as contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel. In other words, he's saying people who practice that are not saved. They are condemned by the law. The law rejects that as ungodly, as unholy, as lawless. And so those principles upon which slavery in the Caribbean and the New World were built, principles of race, the creation of race, the fiction of race, uh, principles of perpetual bondage, uh, the chattel principle that human beings belong to someone as property, to be disposed of as they wish as property, the Bible pronounces an anathema on all of that. It's contrary to the gospel. It's contrary to the scripture. It's contrary to the law. 
So the slavery here and the use of the term bondservant, I think is meant to bring into view a different kind of slavery that's also quite ancient, where persons because of perhaps debt or other obligations might, might sell themselves into slavery to pay off that debt, right? And so they're, they're referred here as bond servants, servants who are in bondage normally for a period of time, not based upon race or things of that sort. And in any case, Paul has to address this relationship, a relationship that in whatever circumstances it occurs, whether it's debt bondage or whether it's man-stealing, is not a natural relationship between human beings. Slavery is unnatural in any circumstance. And it puts people in two really different social and economic categories, and it, and it puts people, um, it gives people really different agendas for their lives. It's not easy to reconcile the agenda of a master, a slave owner, with the agenda of the enslaved. So how is it that Paul says honor should be given by the slave to the master? Honor is not something we normally associate with this relationship. And yet here it is being commanded in the Bible. Why? Notice the second part of verse 1. Paul tells us why. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. In other words, the purpose of commanding this is not, is not, is not fundamentally so that the institution and the system and the practices of slavery would be upheld. That's not Paul's agenda. The purpose of commanding this is so that the God who saves us and the word that he speaks, that it would not be reviled, but that it would be honored, that it would be exalted. A Christian slave honoring their own master protects God's name and protects God's word. We exist in a world where there are people quite ready to revile or talk unkindly or abusively about God and about his word. God always faces slander from blasphemers and sinners. But the pure behavior of Christians is meant to silence the critics. That's the principle here. And it occurs not just in the master-slave relationship, but it occurs in lots of difficult relationships uh, that get addressed in the Bible. So, for example, you can write these down, or if you if you quick with your Bible, you can turn with me. First Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. This same purpose, this same principle, gets applied to difficult marriages. A wife with an unbelieving husband. Peter writes there, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. The wife has a testifying, evangelizing, apologetic kind of presence with the husband who doesn't believe the word when her conduct is as God would have it. Or another circumstance, when Christians are being persecuted. First Peter chapter 2, um, verse 12. Just sort of flip back one chapter there. Peter writes to a, the, the church that spread around Asia. That church is being persecuted, is being stamped out. And Peter writes to them to say this, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable 
so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It, it, so it applies not only to wives with unbelieving husbands and the Christian church as it's being persecuted. Here's another difficult situation. It applies to pastors when they are being opposed by their people. Titus chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teachings show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. You see how this principle runs through the Bible and runs through difficult relationships? Here's, here's the principle. Good Christian conduct makes God and his word attractive to people who don't yet believe. Our lives really are sermons. And our best sermons are sometimes preached when we are obeying God in difficult circumstances. And it's marvelous when we come back to 1 Timothy chapter 6. At least I marvel at this. Did you notice this, what this means then? That good Christian conduct from someone who is in bondage, in slavery, means that God binds his name with the slave, not with the powerful. In Christianity, the lowest in society is associated in relationship with the highest in authority, with God himself. And how the slave behaves determines, in some extent, how God is perceived. So that even in bondage, the slave's life becomes sort of, again, an evangelistic, apologetic um, sermon that beautifies God. So Paul is concerned here for the slave's response to his master, not because he's concerned to uphold slavery, but he's concerned that even in difficult situations, our lives might adorn God and bring him honor and bring him praise and create gospel opportunity. And this happens so often in the Christian life. Not just when, when people are in unjust relationships, but in all kinds of suffering. That Christian who suffers in the hospital room at the end of life and continues to praise God. And the nursing staff who marvels at their joy, at their faith. And by God's grace begin to marvel at their God. The circumstances that have been addressed in this Bible, the, the wives and the husbands who persevere with unbelieving spouses or persevere with difficult spouses, not because they can't leave the relationship and not because they don't necessarily even have cause, but for the honor of God's name, they find in that difficult marriage a practical opportunity to practice the discipline of forgiveness, to extend the beauty of grace, to walk together in reconciliation and so beautify and magnify God when others look at it and say, I don't know if I could. And when pastors endure the, 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 the opposition of their people, 
in, in meekness and love and in patience, who remain faithful to the preaching of God's word and, and are sometimes run out of the pulpit for their faithfulness to God's word, when they endure in love and act in such a way that cannot be impeached, it glorifies the God whose word was rejected. Our difficult circumstances are another theater for the display of the riches and the wonders of God's gospel of his son. I wonder if you think about your difficult relationships like that. I wonder if we think about the differences in our church family across all kinds of spectrums as opportunities to glorify God across those differences. Beloved, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, as a church and as Christians, we, we believe a peculiar message. We realize that it's strange to some people, but so let me just sort of try to share it plainly. We believe that God really exists. That part's not really strange for a lot of people. But we believe that there's one God who exists in three persons. Now that gets a little weird for people. How is that the case? We wouldn't have made that up. God had to tell us that that's what he was like. There's one God in three persons. And we believe that even though we have gone crazy in sin, we have just sort of turned the world into a dumpster fire, right? That God still loves us. Now that's the part that people don't think is crazy, that they ought to. That despite our sin and our rebellion against God, he loves us. And we believe that he proved his love for us, that while we were still sinners, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to die for our sins. That's what all that cross business is about. When Jesus has been nailed to the cross, he's not just some mistaken leader. He's not just somebody who was killed for mistaken identity. I mean, it's, it's not just those things. It's God's plan that his son would be crucified in our place as a payment for our sin. So he dies, and, and in his death, he's being judged by God the Father, not because of sins he did, but because of sins we committed. All of humanity, all of our sin is laid upon him, and he is judged for it. And he dies, and he's buried three days. And here's one of those other extraordinary things. Three days later, he rises from the grave, fully alive, full of glory. And he appears to witnesses, one, two, 500 at a time. And then he ascends to heaven. And he leaves this promise that he's going to come again. And he's going to gather those who believe. And he's going to take us with him into the kingdom that he has prepared. And those who do not believe, he's going to leave them to their unbelief, which means they're going to suffer God's judgment forever, separated from him in hell. The good news is no one has to go to hell. That the doors of God's kingdom are wide open to everybody, every walk of life, master and slave rich and poor, black, brown, white, young and old, male and female, confused. God's kingdom is open to you if you would confess your sins to him 
and put your faith in Jesus Christ. You would not only individually have your sins forgiven, but you would, the Bible teaches, then also be adopted into God's own family. This family that we're talking about in 1 Timothy 5 and 6, a family that spans over 2,000 years now and over every people, every country, every continent in the world. A family of immense difference, but unity in this great salvation. And that's what God offers you this morning. And all he calls you to do is to repent of your sins, that is to turn away from them, and to put your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior and follow him as your master. You see, in all this talk about masters and slaves, there's really only one master that matters. It's Jesus. And there's really only one slavery that lasts, that endures, and that's our being enslaved to Christ, which ironically, the Bible tells us is true freedom. That Christ will destroy the bonds of slavery, human slavery, and bring us into a slavery to himself. But that slavery to him is freedom. That's why we sang what we sang this morning. All about this captive being set free. Because that's what Jesus does. And he brings us into his family. And we invite you to come into his family. We invite you to put your faith in Jesus, to follow him, to call upon him right now in prayer, saying, Lord, forgive me my sins and save me for yourself. He always answers that prayer. Call upon him that you might be saved. So we see that the Bible here tells us that the church is comprised of some really interesting people who don't always have the same identity and the same agenda. And so the question becomes, well, the next thing to see here, number two, is in God's family then, if we're to honor one another, well, well, well why? What's the end of that? We, we saw that in a sort of spiritual sense in terms of uh, protecting God's word and God's name, but, but in a relational sense, what's the, what's the end? What's the purpose of our honoring each other across relationships that are so different and, and in some ways so contradictory? Well, point number two, in God's family, we live this way, we strive to live this way in order to bless each other. Notice verse two, the command and the reason in verse two. First, the command, those who have believing masters. So now he's switched from verse one, where you've got a believing slave and an unbelieving master. And now he comes to address specifically those who have believing masters. They must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. So in other words, verse 2 is addressing a situation where there might be two Christians in the same church related to each other by master-slave kind of relationship, and there might be the temptation of the slave to say, well, you know, you're my brother in the Lord, so I'm going to cut corners in my obligation to you. I'm, I'm not going to serve you all that aggressively because, you know, we, we brothers hook a brother up, right? But notice Paul in verse 2 does use that family language brothers. There's a sibling relationship here that comes into view that's a more powerful and a more important relationship than the economic relationship of bondservant to master. And Paul is concerned that in this relationship, again, that we treat each other in a certain way, that there is respect that is shown. The bondservant can fail to treat the master as a brother by exploiting the brother relationship. 
the bond server can be tempted to say, now, you know, because he's my brother, it, it, it all doesn't really matter that much. Sometimes familiarity really does breed contempt. Anybody ever notice that we are sometimes most unkind to the people we are most related to? Shouldn't be that way. But now you read a text like this and you're thinking to yourself, well, this is sounding real pro-slavery to me. This is sounding real 1652 or something. What about the master? Isn't holding his brother as a bondservant an exploitation of their relationship too? What's the master's obligation to their brother or sister? Now, again, when we're reading our Bibles, we want to be careful not to sort of arrive at a at a position on something looking only at one verse or one passage, right? We want to gather all the other passages that are applicable to this subject. And so if we want to understand this well and avoid the impression that Paul has given a one-sided instruction where only the slave has to respect and honor the master, well, we got to bring in some other passages of Scripture. You go back a couple of weeks ago, our brother Matt Swanson did a great job with um, Ephesians 5 and 6 where Paul addresses some of this there. I want to direct us to Philemon, because Paul writes to a man named Onesimus, or writes to a man named Philemon, on behalf of a man named Onesimus. Onesimus was a runaway slave and bumped into Paul while Paul was in jail, and Paul shared the gospel with him, and Onesimus was converted. But Onesimus believed that Jesus was the Christ raised from the dead and became, in that belief, a brother to Paul and a brother to all Christians. And so now Paul is sending Onesimus back to Philemon with a letter. And in that letter, he says a number of things. The whole letter is built, up, built on this appeal from love. But he says in verses 15 and 16, for this perhaps is why he was departed from you for a while, that you might have him back. Notice verse 16. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Now, I think what Paul is saying here in Philemon is that if Christian love is genuine and if Christian love is truly brotherly, then it redefines the relationship between bondservant and slave. The Christian master should not receive the person as a bondservant any longer. They must receive the person as a family member, a brother or sister. That means love and respect goes both ways. And it should have the profound and powerful effect of changing the circumstance of the slave. I believe Philemon was meant to free Onesimus, to receive him as a brother, not as a bondservant, I think means to free him. Think for example, compare that, for example, to Joseph and his brothers. Joseph's the favorite son of his parents, got the coat of many colors, it's always bragging about how the family's going to bow down to him one day. The brothers get tired of those visions and dreams. They out in the field, and, and dad says, go check on your brothers. So they're probably out there partying or something. Go see what they're doing. Joseph's just real happy to rat on his brothers, right? They go out in the field. They see him coming. So, all right, all right, this is what we're going to do. They put that rascal in a pit. They tear up the coat of many colors. They take the blood of an animal and smear it on the coat, make it look like he got killed by a wild animal. What did they do with Joseph, though? They sold him into slavery. Now, when you read that passage of Scripture, is there anything in you 
that leads you to feel or think or believe that that was brotherly. It's a betrayal of brotherliness, isn't it? It's a betrayal of brotherhood, isn't it? And, and a great sort of climax of the story, the end of Genesis, of course, is that their, brother, their brotherly relationships are restored by this incredible act of gospel forgiveness, right? When Philemon gets Onesimus back and is told to love him as a brother, it's inconceivable from a genuine Christian perspective that he could continue to hold him as a bondservant. See, love is meant to have this expulsive, radical power to dismantle unnatural, exploitative relationships in the church, at least in the church. And we pray to some degree in the world. The challenge is most of us are not radical enough in our understanding of love. So why should they not disrespect each other? Well, the reason is given at the second part of verse two. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. Despite the fact that they occupy really different positions in society, they have probably really different agendas in terms of their own self-interest. Despite the fact that they have that great difference, one thing that a healthy family does is it serves each of its members. It looks to benefit its members. And this is why Paul says, don't, don't take brotherliness and respect as brotherliness and turn that into license to kind of cheat your brother. No, serve them. Precisely because they're brothers, precisely because they're sisters. And so there's this, this interesting sort of dynamic in the family of God where we all come in here in our natural circumstances, our natural affiliations, our natural positions in life. And, and we come in here with all of that difference. And all of that difference could make us suspicious, it could make us distant, could make us cold, a little bit aloof, not trusting, etc. But we come in here and we are reminded that we have the same Savior. And we are reminded that the same Spirit lives in us. And we are reminded that there are certain obligations of Christian love. And in all of that reminding, we are reminded that we're to give ourselves to each other. Now, if that really happens, the circumstances kind of fall out of view. The fact that we are slave or free, this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 7 that we read earlier uh, in the service. If you were called as a slave, he said, don't let it bother you. Like, what? He said, don't let it bother you because you're Christ. And he says, and if you were saved or called when you were free, don't trip you're, you're Jesus' bondservant. So whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, that's not the defining thing when it comes to our relationship as the family of God. Jesus is, love is, honor is, and that requires we forget ourselves a bit and we lean into each other and we honor each other and we serve each other even when serving each other doesn't appear to be to our material benefit. Isn't that the implication of verse 2? 
So let me come then to point number three and conclude. Just some observations. I said here in point three, the point very simply is God's family is not like our family. I think there's four ways in which that's true. Number one, God's family includes the haves and the have-nots in one local church family. Now, it may be the case that in our families, we got some haves and some have-nots, but what normally happens, they don't associate too much, do they? Right? The haves ain't trying to mess with the have-nots, and the have-nots are like the haves, they all uppity, right? Well, the church family combines people in different and difficult social, economic, and political relationships. It combines us with each other. The example that's being given here is slave and master, but we could talk about this along a number of lines that divide people. We could talk about class, we could talk about social standing, economic standing, racial and ethnic group, uh, or political lines and political parties. And man has made the local church a partisan clique when God did not. Beloved, it is unhealthy. It is unhealthy from a gospel perspective to have Republican churches and Democratic churches. It's unhealthy. And even though we understand the historical circumstance that creates it, and so therefore we understand it, it's not the best health, biblically speaking, to have black churches and white churches, to be divided along racial lines. It's not. It's not what the gospel creates. It's what man creates. It's, it's unhealthy from a biblical perspective to have, to have churches that are seen as country club churches and to have churches that are seen as kind of little storefront poor churches. To sort of class the church or race the church or, or partisanize the church, that's not the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the work of man. See, God puts in his family people from very different walks of life, from very different sort of perspectives in very different conditions. Conditions that sometimes feel like they're at odds with each other. So your political view rubs up against mine and, and, and your sort of um, economic agenda seems like it hurts mine, et cetera. And the easy thing to do would be to say, okay, then I need to, I need to jet. Find somebody just like me on all these measures. I think God would have us understand that to be a failure in love and a failure to honor, a failure to look out for the interests of others even as we look out for ours. Living together in the faith across these divisions, beloved, is hard. Let, let nobody think this is as simple as singing Kumbaya or as easy as just saying, you, you don't see these things. Listen, escapism is no escape. In other words, we should take note, take note now, that Paul, on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in the Bible, is addressing the church about things that people would call divisive. When you run into that species of thinking that says, we don't ever want to talk about anything divisive, I guarantee you, I guarantee you, that they're going to be parts of the Bible, those folks either skip or spiritualize. 
and miss the flesh and blood gritty reality that's right there on the page. He's talking to a church that has slaves and masters and addressing that openly in writing that would go to the rest of the church for the rest of time. What do you mean we can't talk about divisive things? The Bible does. We shouldn't talk about it in divisive ways. Everything's fair game for gospel people who love the truth, including the difficulty of how we relate to each other in the church. And, and I, got, I got news for you. The churches who avoid these things and don't talk about these things, they don't have any deeper unity than the churches who do. In fact, they have shallower unity that could be broken as easily as someone standing up and talking about the divisive thing. Now, we want to be the congregation that can have the conversation about hard things because the Bible does. And, and as we develop that capacity to have those conversations, we develop an informed, deeper unity rooted in honoring each other and loving each other across these lines because we are Christ and Christ is in us. There's a second observation. We don't get to pick who's in God's family. My brother got engaged on Saturday. He chose her. And she chose him. And that's a beautiful thing. To be chosen. Except love that way. So we have a great deal of freedom in how we form our families, right? But not with God's family. It's just going to be some people in God's family that you and I don't like and wouldn't choose. If we were little kids on the playground getting our kickball teams, we'd be looking over that person, you know, picking everybody but that person, be standing out there last if it was up to us. We don't get to choose who's in God's family. You know, there's no admissions committee for the church. There's no admissions committee for the kingdom of God. They're not people sort of voting on who gets in and who gets out. They're not reviewing applications for whether or not you've done these kind of extracurriculars or whether or not you've got this kind of grade, what your SAT scores are. None of that is sort of a part at all of who God loves and who God saves. God alone chooses his family. And God alone places in his family who he wants in his family, and God for his own reasons and for his own glory and for our sanctification decides to put together in the church people you and I, we don't just click with necessarily or we have ideological disagreements with or what have you. We're still meant to be together because that wasn't the basis of our unity anyway. God's work in salvation was. And this is, this is why, beloved, we should be really, 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 really slow to leave a church over these kinds of differences in social, political, economic standing. We should come to that real slowly. Now, if a church is teaching somebody that you can't be a Christian or you can't be in this church unless you wear this political jersey or that political, okay, you might need to leave a church like that because they're starting to distort the gospel. But otherwise, 
If it's a church, a true biblical church, it's going to have people from every tribe and language and nation. It's going to have a whole lot of difference in it. And that difference is not a threat to the gospel. That difference is not a threat to unity. That difference is an invitation to sanctification and love. Be slow to leave that. That's for your good. Might hurt for a season, but that's for your good. That's for my good. We don't get to pick who's in God's family, and we shouldn't walk out on God's family lightly. Number three, we've been saying this, so I won't spend a lot of time on it, but in the local church, in God's family, we will have to honor people whose interests don't align with our own. We're going to have to honor people whose interests don't always align with our own. That's hard. That's hard. Because we tend to think that our interests are the most important ones. And in our interests, in our interests, we, we're always right. And it's hard for us as limited human beings to, to sort of hold a multi-perspective view of a situation, that there, there might actually be multiple interests that need to be satisfied. I don't tend to think in those terms. And again, I think this is why the Bible commands us, like in, I think it's Philippians 2 and, and other places, to look not only for our own interests, but also for the interests of others. Well, well why is that looking out for our interests and others' interests important? It, it's important because it keeps us from tearing the fabric of the church apart along our interest lines. And, and there's, there are a few things in the life of the church that's harder to recover from than deep-seated, tight-fisted self-interest. It's hard to get the self-interested to lay down their life for somebody else. It's hard to get the sinfully self-interested to, to take an interest in others and to, to do that at cost to themselves, like the Good Samaritan traveling the road and binding up the person who was in need and paying the bills for himself, you know, out of his own pocket. Self-interest doesn't produce that. Sacrificial love is what produces that. And so we'll, we'll have to learn to honor each other's interests. And, and just again, to be, to be just sort of transparent or not transparent, um, explicit, I guess is the word I'm looking for. There are going to be places where the interests of men and women differ as men and women. And the challenge for us will be to figure out how to look out for our own interests and the interests of the other. Lest we become sort of a, a, a group of people who are having the battle of the sexes. There are going to be places where the interests of African Americans and white Americans and Hispanic Americans and Asian Americans will differ, will differ when viewed from that, that sort of gift of our ethnic selves. And we'll have to figure out a way not to, not to have race wars in the church, but to actually have conversations that lead to looking out for each other's interests and even being willing to do something for the other's interests that isn't patently clear is in my interest because God calls us to. 
There are going to be places where we have differences politically. Somebody's a Democrat, somebody's a Republican, somebody is a, an, an independent, somebody's in the Green Party, um, somebody's an anarchist. They can all be Christians. And how they think about resolving the world's problems could be really quite different. For my own part, truth in advertising, I, I like to regard myself as something of a gray-haired radical. My basic orientation from the days of reading David Walker and Nat Turner and Marcus Garvey and a host of other folks that some of you know and many of you won't. Don't go read them. You need, most of, many of you will need a guide. If you're going to read them, let me guide you. Okay? a whole world of thought out there that all of us are not exposed to, right? Well, how do you get conservatives and radicals and progressives and libertarians and all these folks with different views? How do you, how do you get them to walk together? I honestly don't know any other way than reminding each other of Jesus and our love for each other and of the freedom we have to sit down and have good conversation, to look out for each other's interests. I don't think suppression helps us. Not when the Bible's not suppressing things. Last thing, then I'm done. I'm out your way. And it's just this observation that we, we must live to honor God no matter our social and economic condition. That's hard, too. It's hard, too. I mean, he's writing to a slave saying, obey your master. That's hard to hear in 2022 as a descendant of slaves, knowing how that text would have been twisted and perverted, and that's all that would ever have been preached to slaves. Knowing that 1 Corinthians 7, verse 21, would never have been preached to slaves, if you can, gain your freedom. Right? It's kind of hard to hear, and you think about your condition, you think about your circumstance, whether it's slave or, or whether it's suffering of some other sort, et cetera, and, and the condition would tempt you to say, Lord, I don't deserve this, I don't need this, is there, you know, is there another way? And that's a good biblical prayer. Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you will, take this cup from me. Nothing wrong with asking the Lord to change your condition. Now, we're not, we're not, we're not you know, looking for pain. So nothing wrong with asking the Lord to change our conditions. That's a good, honest, healthy, biblical prayer. But if he doesn't, will we praise him anyway? Will we glorify him anyway? If he still slays us, will we praise him? If he puts us in the oven with the Hebrew boards and turns up the heat, will, will, we, will, we, will we praise him? If our political leaders build a statue to themselves and say, you must bow down to it, will we open the windows so everybody can see us bending not to the idol, but bending to God and praising him? If our body is broken and fading and we're in pain constantly, will we praise him anyhow? Will we exalt him anyhow? If we're the ones who seem to be losing in this or that thing, economically, politically, socially, educationally, will we praise him through the losing? Will we praise him through the suffering? 
Will we honor God no matter our condition? The man in prison doesn't get to say, I'm not going to glorify God because I'm in prison. No, that's the theater God has chosen for him in which to play the main role in glorifying Christ. Condition is not king. Jesus is. And it's ours to praise him as a family in the various conditions we find ourselves in. That won't sound like good news. Not a lot of the times. Not when we're actually in it. But it is what the Bible holds out as the path to freedom. Praising God anyhow. Trusting God anyhow. Loving God anyhow. And somehow, those anyhows make our condition weaker and our Christ greater. May it be so with all of us if we are suffering now, if suffering's in our future, if we've come through suffering, and we praise God anyhow. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for a church that includes slaves and masters. We thank you that membership in your family is not decided by human beings. And we thank you that people who seem to us to be unworthy of your grace, they nevertheless find it because you are a gracious God gracious to all. And we thank you, Lord, that those that we think least likely to be deserving of honor, Lord, you have a way in your grace of making it plain that we all, we all deserve honor, respect, love. It's people made in your image and people saved by your son, people appointed to eternal life. We thank you, Lord, that you've called us to be a church. You've called us to be a family. And we thank you, Lord, that you have called us to, to do so, not again in a superficial, happy, clappy, escapist way. But you called us as one church among many to have our eyes really open, to, to understand the, the call of following you, the cross-carrying that it requires to understand the burden-sharing love that you have called us to, to learn to grow in that because we're growing in Jesus, because we're growing in faith, we're growing in love. We are dying to sinful self-interest and expressing interest and concern for others even perhaps especially when it, it costs us. We thank you that salvation is free, but we, we also freely admit that it's not cheap. So we pray, help us to count the cost of discipleship. Help us to pay the cost of discipleship and grant that our lives in whatever condition we are in, whatever circumstance, would bring you honor and glory and praise among those who do not believe and especially 
among the household of faith. Do this, we pray, for your glory. Do it for our joy. Do it for our sense of purpose and meaning. Do it for our fulfillment, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.